Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, we've been going through 2 Corinthians and watching Paul give a careful defense of his new covenant ministry. We're going to be in chapter 5, and I think we'll go from verses 12 to 21 today and talk about a ministry and message of love. A ministry and message of love. Because Paul in this section is continuing to explain to the readers his ministry as a minister of the new covenant. And what is it that motivates him? Because all of that was in question by his uh, critics there in Corinth. And he's trying to restore his relationship to the Corinthians and assure them of uh, his authenticity as an apostle. He's talked about his motivation for ministry earlier. Uh, Actually, that section goes from chapter 214 to 610. He talks about his motivation for ministry. And in the earlier part of chapter 5, just to remind you, verses 1 through 11, he talked about the resurrection, and though he's dying outwardly, and uh, he knows that one day he, he will be raised bodily, and that should be a great encouragement and motivation for anyone in ministry, that there's a better future waiting for us so we can be free to sacrifice and give here in this world. And he also mentions in verse 11, uh, verse 10, first of all, the judgment seat of Christ and how he will have to give an account there. And... Um, that includes a deep respect, if you want to call it fear, in verse 11. That's how the word is usually translated. <clears throat> There's some kind of reverence or fear associated with the judgment seat of Christ that Paul felt. Um, and again, we, we didn't say that this was a negative experience. We're all going to be happy to be in heaven, but we also know that we're going to give an account. And uh, there, there, I guess it would be kind of like the accounting that you might face if you're going to take an exam or something. You're not afraid, but you're certainly respectful of uh, what's taking place there with a certain kind of fear that you could do well or not. And so that verse 11, which kind of uh, transitions into our passage today, verse 12, some Bibles even include verse 11 with the paragraph of verse 12, um, as he continues to explain his motivations. And the negative, negative motivation for him persuading men, I think, and sharing the gospel ministry is that he will have to give an account before the Lord. And there's a certain fear or reverence that goes with that. Today's uh, passage shows us another motivation that he has, and he explains that to them. And uh, we'll look at that in just a second. So let's look at verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Paul's saying uh, to them, he's trying to explain his zeal and, um, and approach to ministry to them. And I think what he's saying here is, doesn't feel like he needs to commend himself again or I don't want to use the word brag, but promote himself to them again, <clears throat> except that he would like them to defend him against his critics. 
give them an opportunity to post on his behalf uh, in front of the critics. And so he wants to mention some things so that they can answer them intelligently about him and his motives and his ministry. Um, he talks about those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Those would be his critics there. So Paul has explained previously in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that he has to speak to them as babes, as to carnal Christians. And uh, th that means like with any, like any, any child, for example, you have to go carefully and slowly and explain things and sometimes repeat them. And I think that's the approach Paul realizes he needs to take with them, even though in chapter 12, verse 11, he'll say later on that he, look, he knows he looks like a fool telling people about all his sufferings and things that he's gone through. But he just fe feels it's necessary, at least so that they'll kind of have his back and be able to defend him against his critics. So I think that's what verse 12 is all about. And in verse 13... He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. In other words, if, if we look like we're crazy, it's for God's sake. And let's face it, a lot of the things that Paul did looked fanatical or, or um, over the top, maybe, you know. <clears throat> he talks about being shipwrecked a couple times and being stoned. and It wouldn't take but one shipwreck for me to probably turn around and decide not to be a missionary or get, get stoned one time, or get flogged one time, or beaten. And I'd probably say, okay, that's it. God didn't call me to this ministry. But Paul kept going back for more. I mean, he looked crazy to them, the way he was taking uh, the suffering and the punishment coming his way. So I think that's what he means when he says, if we look like we're beside ourselves, it's for God. He's doing it for God. Uh, but if we're of sound mind, it's for you. If he's making any sense to them, uh, he wants them to know that he's totally devoted to them and he's doing it for their sake and for the, on their behalf. So he has good reasons for what he's doing uh, for them and he's going to go on and explain some of those things. So he might look crazy, but he's doing it for them um, and he is of sound mind. And here's one of his explanations that motivates him. Now, with the negative explanation in verse 11 was that the fear of the Lord. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. I'll go on, verse 15. And he died for all, that all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul's here telling them that his motive behind his ministry for them is the love of Christ that compels him. Not his love for Christ, I believe, but God's love for us. That's the way it's usually presented in the Bible. Not that we love him first, but that God first loved us, 1 John 4.10. And the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. So after experiencing God's love, that love compels us to love other people the way God loves them. And the word compels there means uh, uh, to control. It, it, it was a controlling force in his life. And um, God's love was such a powerful wave. It just swept him along in ministry to do the, the crazy looking things that he did and to take the kind of abuse 
that he took. You know, we have to admit that love is perhaps one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful force in the world. When you listen to music, 90% of it's about love. When you watch TV, 90% of it's about love. Movies, poems, um, love is a powerful force. Uh, I, I love Song of Solomon, chapter 8, where it talks about love being um, as strong as uh, death and, and so forth. Um, talks about how love is a very compelling force. Um, so he says, the, it's this love that compels us uh, forward into ministry, is what he's saying, because we judge thus. Or in other words, because this is how we consider it, I think he's saying, that if one died for all, then all died. And of course, the one would be Jesus Christ. And if he died for all, then all died. Now, what does he mean by that? I think what he's saying is Christ's death was on behalf of everybody, and he died the death that all of us should have died, uh, believers and unbelievers. And so that's how he could say then all died because uh, of what Christ did in our place. And then his conclusion from that, or the extension of his thought in verse 15, is that and he died for all that those who should who live should live no longer for themselves, but for them, him who died for them and rose again. So if Jesus died for all, then those who live. Now here I see um, him drawing attention to the whole world and what God did for the whole world in giving Christ, who died for all. And all died in the sense that Christ died for all people in their place. But... Then he talks about those who live. Now, that obviously couldn't be talking about uh, the unbelievers. So those of us who have realized what Jesus did, those of us who have new life because we've understood the significance of his death and uh, the gift of eternal life, those of us who live then through him should no longer live for ourselves or for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So... The realization of Christ's sacrifice and death and salvation bring us to a place, should bring us to a place, where we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again, Paul carefully explains, which is good because a lot of times we talk about the gospel as Jesus died for our sins and we forget to mention the resurrection, but there's not going to be much any salvation without a resurrection. Um. So he died for all in the sense that he died for everyone's sin. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk about that. The scope of his, his redemption, the scope of it, is for all people. Of course, the, uh, the strong Calvinists want to say that Christ only died for the elect. And they would say all doesn't really mean all. It means all kinds of men or all social strata, all social um, classes of people, all races or something like that, they would water this down so that they can make it say that Christ died for all the elect. But that's obviously not what Paul was talking about. He talks later about reconciling everyone to himself too, which we're going to look at. Um, so he died in uh, verse 15, and that's in the a, what's called the aorist tense, which means a past event, it's happened, obviously referring to the crucifixion. 
um, that all those who live is in a different tense, it's in a perfect tense. So perfect tense signifies something that has happened but continues to have an effect or continues to happen. So Christ died once and for all in the crucifixion, and those of us who live should live for him and not ourselves. Um, so his conclusion, again, from this in verse 16 is, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer. Um, when you think about Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, that was a turning point in his life. Before his conversion, he saw Christians as the enemy or perhaps a dangerous sect. He saw Jesus as perhaps a failure, certainly not the Messiah. He saw him only on human terms as somebody who was born in an insignificant town of Bethlehem who uh, he didn't consider a legitimate king or Messiah at all. After his conversion, he sees him differently. So that's the from now on. And not only does he see Jesus differently, uh, he sees he's no one according to the flesh. In other words, um, he looks at people differently now, not just according to how wealthy they are, or, or we would say what zip code they live in, or what kind of car they drive, or what race they are. Uh, he doesn't look at people like that anymore. And he doesn't look think about Christ just like he doesn't think about Christ that way anymore. According to the flesh means as a human, I think, here. And so we don't know him thus any, any longer, he says. I think what uh, Paul's experience did for him is caused him to see people really as only two different groups of people. There are those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And so instead of seeing people uh, by race and social status, he sees them only as they need to know Christ. I don't think Paul was impressed by any kind of power or wealth or influence that people might have. He just saw them as unsaved people. And that's why he witnessed to you know, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate, that's why he witnessed to uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, and, um, and why he wanted to go to Rome. And uh, that's, that's a good way of looking at life is, uh, you know, they say, in, sometimes they say to public speakers or those who are performing on stage, they say, just picture everybody in their underwear, you know, in the audience, just make you feel more confident. That's never really appealed to me to think of everybody in the underwear of God's own. <laughs> but, but I think we can look at mankind that way, can't we? Everybody is spiritually naked or deprived or, uh, in their sin. No matter if they're flying in a, a private jet or if they're, they're riding a bicycle because um, they lost their driver's license. Everybody's in that same category <clears throat> as a sinner. Uh, and we should look at people that way, and that should give us a certain sense of confidence in dealing with them and, and a certain sense of compassion in dealing with all people and not be intimidated by things like power and things like that. And he goes on in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So another conclusion from this, as he looks at Christ differently now and considers those who are in Christ, is that if, you, if we are in Christ, 
we are new creations. There is something that actually happens constitutionally in reality where when we are born again that we have a new life in us. It's not just a theology, it's not just a position, it's an actuality. We are actually new people. We are regenerated, the Bible says. Like a baby being born, we are born spiritually. <clears throat> so we are new creations in that sense. Now, now, he says, old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Um, when he says all old things have passed away, uh, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand that uh, as saying that um, all of our sins, our old conduct has been done away. Um, and that's their basis for saying that if you don't have life changed, then you never really were born again. But if we take verse 16 into consideration, the immediately context, the immediate context, <clears throat> what Paul is saying is the old way of looking at things has passed away, and all things have become new. We see people in a new way. He can't be saying that all of our old conduct and sins has passed away because you and I both know that ha they haven't, right? I mean, we still have some bad habits. We've retained some bad habits and some things we shouldn't do, things that uh, still uh, cause us to stumble. Um, so we cannot evaluate someone's salvation on the basis of uh, the sin in their life. Uh, we cannot uh, be assured of our own salvation by looking at uh, the sin in our life, the old things, uh, we, if, they're, if it's worth to refer to sin. But I think he's talking in context about the way we think about others. The old, those, that has passed away. We have a new perspective. And all things have become new. And we see people in a new way. So there are a lot of old things that have, have passed away. We see Christ differently. We see ourselves differently. And there's a lot of new things that we continue to see um, we experience the new life. We experience forgiveness. We we see the Holy Spirit working in us. We uh, we can experience new righteousness every day, new hope uh, about the future. Um, so I think that's what he's referring to. Not not that we stop sinning and uh, we sin no longer. Now he goes on in verse eighteen to talk about a new responsibility. So we have a new perspective and now a new responsibility because of that. And I'm going to read verse 18 and 19 together. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I love the way he begins that in verse 18. Now all things are of God. Uh, isn't that true? Uh, all good things are of God. That's really what grace is all about. Things originate. Grace is what God originates. Uh, what our, our blessings they all come from him. And uh, that's what we call grace. But one of the things he's done, he says, is who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now Paul says us here. And so that's easy to understand that God has reconciled us who are believers to himself through Jesus Christ. Uh, the word reconcile means to remove a barrier of hostility so that there can be harmony in a relationship. Let me say it again. 
The word reconcile means to remove some kind of barrier of hostility so that there can be harmony in a relationship. So God has certainly done that, removed the barrier of sin that separated us from God so that we could now have harmony and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I think that's easy enough for us to understand as Christians. But here's a, a little something a little more difficult to understand. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Um, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the world, word of reconciliation. Now this tells us that God has also reconciled the world to himself. And I believe that would refer to even the world of unbelievers. So in what sense is the world of everyone, including unbelievers, reconciled to God? I think what Paul is, and we'll see as we go on also, that Paul is recognizing that Jesus in his sacrifice removed the barrier of sin that would keep anyone in the world from coming to God. There is no longer a barrier. And even though God has done that work, that is not necessarily implying that everybody is saved. <clears throat> if we were to take it that way, then we would have to believe in universalism. Universalism is that Jesus, that everybody goes to heaven, everybody is saved. Um, but we know that that's not true. We know it's not taught in the scripture. And so he can't mean uh, universalism when he says Christ reconciled the world, world to himself. But God has an overall design for all of creation. Uh, I think it's Colossians 1.20 says that God is, wants to reconcile all things to himself. Talking about all of creation is someday going to be reconciled to God and the curse of sin uh, totally removed, although he's done that provisionally through Jesus Christ, not imputing tre their trespasses to them. Uh, in other words, not charging them with their sins any longer because Jesus has been charged with the sins of the world, imputed. The sins have been imputed to him, placed on him, so they are no longer placed on the world. And um, sin is not a reason uh, that anyone has to perish. And Paul gets somewhat practical in the end of verse 19 by saying, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, now here, notice the pronouns again is us. So it would be us believers or us in ministry, however you want to consider that word, us, but it refers to believers. So we as believers have this word of reconciliation. We can tell the world that Jesus has reconciled the world to himself by not charging us with our sins. Um, and that's the message that we have. But the very fact that we have to proclaim that message tells us that the world is not, um, uh, has not realized that reconciliation. It has been made provision for, but it is not realized. Um, some put it this way, and I and I can agree with this language that God has made the by reconciling the world, God has made it savable by removing the barrier of sin through Christ, he has made the world savable. But that doesn't automatically mean the world is saved. It's provided for all, but only realized by those who accept that gift of eternal life and that has been promised to us. 
And I think that goes, um, in verse 20, I think he argues for that, uh, or we can argue for that particular view even more. So the word of reconciliation, I think, refers to the gospel message here, uh, which is what he's going to explain next. And um, like I said, if, if the whole world has already been actually reconciled to God, then there's nothing to proclaim. There's no word of good news because everyone would be saved. I would, I might compare it to, um, I, I was trying to think of a good example for this, and these probably, no example is perfect, and, but if, let's say every, uh, everyone or a group of people waste their money and they go into debt and they're, they're facing imprisonment because of tax evasion, they can't pay their taxes and everything else. And I come and I, I pay all their debt to the government. I pay all their taxes. Um, it's been provided for them, but if they don't accept the payment or if they deny the payment or turn down my check or however you want to picture it, um, then they're going to suffer the penalty even though it's been paid for. Maybe that's not the best example. Maybe another example would be like if everyone, if, if there's uh, someone in prison for murder and he's got a life sentence and I somehow am able to pay for that or pardon. Let's, okay, let's use a, something that can actually happen. A president pardons that, that criminal. That person can actually go free. But if he chooses to remain in prison and die in prison, then he's in prison because of his choice and because of something he did before. And he's, and he's decided to live with the consequences of his previous action, even though it's been provided for that he not be punished. Um, so we talk about the world being reconciled provisionally, but only realized by those who appropriate, believe that promise, and accept that offer of freedom. <clears throat> I don't know if those are the best examples or if any example really does, does justice to the truth here, but uh, that's about as close as I can get. So uh, he goes on in verse 20, now then, and uh, because of what he's explained and so forth, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Okay, so now then, he says, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ. We who are saved are ambassadors. And of course, you know what an ambassador is. It's a person who represents a country to another country, and they are to be the intermediator, intermediary, the mediator of a message. They are not to produce the message, but an ambassador uh, to Belgium would understand what the president wants Belgium to know and tell them that message, <clears throat> and vice versa. And our role then is, our, as ambassadors is to represent Jesus Christ and his message not to change it, not to make, make up our own message, but to be so devoted to his message, it, it is as if God is pleading through us, as if God himself were speaking through us. We do not have the right or the privilege uh, to change that message at all because it's Jesus Christ pleading through us. And I think this shows the importance of what it means to be an ambassador, because if, if we don't do the pleading, then who's going to do it? And so Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
Now, wait a minute. If God has already reconciled the world to, world to himself, why does Paul need to implore people or uh, urge them, the word means, to be reconciled to God? You see what I'm saying? So there is a provision of reconciliation, but yet we have to urge people to be reconciled. <clears throat> now, one thing to note, if you're using the New King James, it'll, it'll clue you in on this. Uh, the second person plural pronoun, you, is not there. In other words, he's saying we implore on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. So he's not necessarily addressing the Corinthians here. Uh, that word you is added in the translation. And I take it that Paul is speaking generally. He's saying that, look, this is what Christ has done. He's, he's reconciled the word, world. And so now we implore men to be reconciled, to take that reconciliation and <clears throat> come back into harmony um, with God because the barrier of sin is removed. He, I don't think he's telling the Corinthians who are already reconciled, have already realized that, are already Christians, to be reconciled to God. Some believe he may be telling them to be back in harmony in their fellowship with God. Uh, but I don't see that because he talks in the next verse uh, about what Christ did to save us. Not to bring us into fellowship, but to save us. But I hope you're following what I'm saying here. <laughs> Does that make sense to you? Um, uh, let me say it one more time. Christ, God has reconciled the whole world by removing the barrier of sin. But that doesn't mean the whole world is automatically saved. That's why we as ambassadors need to go out and urge people to be reconciled, to take that reconciliation, to take that pardon from sin, to take that penalty that was paid so we don't have to pay it ourselves. And he's urging them then to be reconciled to God. Now, verse 21 becomes very important because here he's explaining uh, how reconciliation was accomplished and also the message that he is proclaiming. Because this is how reconciliation was accomplished, this is also what he's proclaiming to people, verse 21. For he, Christ, um, God, I'm sorry, for he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. God made Christ his son, who was perfect in this life and guiltless. He made him to be sin for us um, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange, the great imputation of our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us. Isaiah talked about that in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, the imputation of our sins on the guiltless one. And he was made sin for us. I don't think that means that he was made a sinner, but points to the fact that he bore our sin and all of God's judgment for our sin upon himself. And that's what it means when he was made sin for us. And the outcome of that is that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we who are full of guilt are given God's righteousness because the guiltless one bore the penalty of God's judgment for our sin. And now he's able to declare us righteous, that's justification, um, before God. So we have the righteousness of God in Christ as well. So the message and the how of this reconciliation is that 
Christ died on our behalf so that he could give us, take our sins and the penalty and give us the righteousness of God. And uh, that's why the cross is at the center of this message. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. He paid for our sins. And um, that's the message that we have as ambassadors to people is Christ died for us and paid that price. And of course, he now lives to offer eternal life. Um, you know, wherever I, I, I go, I, I find it just a common problem, whether in America or any other country, is that people think that they can earn their way to heaven or eternal life um, by, their, by, by being good and uh, by doing good works, by keeping a list of rules or whatever, which we would call legalism, uh, legalistic salvation, by doing something. And this verse is telling us that Jesus did everything. And when people realize that, uh, that becomes a saving moment for them. I can't save myself. Jesus died for me. And uh, it's his salvation uh, that was bought at the cross. Um, so it's one of my, one of my favorite verses. Um, so what are we left with here? Well, let me, let me draw some points of... Uh, practical application, maybe. Um, first of all, I think our ministry should be controlled by God's love. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. Um, there's many reasons someone can go into ministry as a vocation or teach a Sunday school class. Sometimes people are guilted into doing things. Sometimes people do things to think they can earn favor with God. Sometimes people do things because their daddy did. Um, yeah, there's so many reasons people can do good things and things that look like godly things. <clears throat> now, Paul cuts to the heart of it and explains that his motivation for the Corinthians is the love of Christ is causing him to endure the suffering and minister with them and stick with them and so forth. And that always ought to be, I think, our deepest and best motivation for whatever we do in ministry is uh, not getting up in the morning saying, oh, I promised I'd be there and bring the cookies for the Bible club or something. No, remember, God loves those children. God loves me and what he did for me. And um, the love of Christ ought to compel us forward to meeting the needs of others and spreading that message of good news. Uh, another application I find here is that as new creations, we can see through new spiritual eyes and not just according to human standards. Uh, you and I as believers should be able to look at the world from a different perspective than the rest of the world is looking at themselves. Uh, let me give you an example. You've heard so much lately about critical race theory, right? You know what critical race theory is? Critical race theory is basically based in Marxism, and it teaches that uh, everything in the world is divided into race, or, and Marxism goes on to talk about social standing. So critical race theory in America is teaching that if you're white, you're a racist. You just don't know it yet, you're a racist. And um, they don't seem to say that about the other races, it seems, but if you're white and in control of a society and have the power and influence, 
then you're automatically a racist. And you're an oppressor. And if you're a person of color, you're the oppressed. You may not know it, you may not feel like it, you could be a millionaire, but uh, you're, you're one of the oppressed. Everything is seen through the eyes of race. The whole world is explained through the eyes of race. The moment you do that, you become a racist, by definition. You see nothing but differences instead of similarities. But what does the Bible teach about race? It says that in Christ, we're all one. Uh, we're actually all of one race because we're all from Noah. And one race, we have different blood, different tribes, but we're all of one race, the human race, and uh, we all have red blood. And the Bible says in Christ, there's neither man nor woman nor, nor Jew or Gentile. It doesn't look at race, it doesn't look at sex as dividing things, but, but sees uh, us as creations of God. And that's what the world has failed to see in their blindness. And, but we who know Christ have a different perspective. We're taught it in the scriptures that we're all equal in him. Uh, there's functional differences in the home. The, the husband, the man is the head of the wife. We, that's what the scriptures say. But before God, there's an, what we call an ontological equality. In other words, before God, we're actually equal, though you're functionally different. You have a boss at work, but after work, you go to lunch, you're equal, right? He's only a boss at work. So there has to be a hierarchy sometimes of authority and differences for the sake of functioning in a society or a family, but that doesn't mean that people are different or oppressors and so forth. So this critical race theory, I'm just really saddened by it because, um, you know, America has kind of avoided this, but when I go to another, other countries where there's, uh, in Myanmar, there's 30-some tribes, in Ghana, there's 50-some tribes, in Burundi, there's really only two major tribes. It's the tribes that are fighting each other. And everything is tribal, and they're, they're different cultures are fighting each other. And now America is becoming that way. We're tribalizing because people want to, there's the white tribe and the black tribe and the Asian tribe and the Hispanic tribe. Just saddens me to see that because there's no hope for unity as long as you divide people by race. But we as Christians, again, have a new perspective and we see people differently. We should see people differently. Let me give you an example of good. Um, this comes from recent experiences and, and uh, conversations I've had I serve on the board of someone who works in India and has an Indian, Indian Bible college, one of the biggest and best ones in the country there in India. And uh, we recently added a new board member, and um, I'll call his name, first name is Wilson. He's a pastor, pastor's up in Garland, graduated from Dallas Seminary. That's not how he started, though. He started in the lowest caste in India, who would go from door to door in villages and empty the sewer pots, okay? Carry him on his head and then go to the next one, empty that, carry it on his head to the next house. When you're born that way in India, you're pretty much going to die that way in India. That's what you do. You, you stay at that level, you marry at that level, you live at that level. He somehow was able to break away from that and become a nurse and got saved and uh, came to the United States with the seminary and so forth. And became a friend of uh, the leader of this ministry in India. and. Um, and, and, and now he's on the board, but they've been friends for a while. Now, now Suquant, the leader of this ministry, his, he's from a high caste in the Sikh religion, which is another major religion in India. 
the Sikh religion. And his uh, mother uh, is from the highest priestly caste in the Sikhism. And one day he took Wilson to meet his mother and did not tell his mother who he was. His mother has since become a Christian. So Wilson went and met, met his mother, and they had some conversation and explained pleasantries. And he says, oh, I want you to know that, you know, I used to be part of the ones who went from door to door to homes like yours and emptied the sewer pots. And he kind of waited to see how she would react. And she didn't react at all. And he said, well, I was kind of worried about your reaction. I didn't know how you would accept me. And she says, if God has accepted you, then who are we to reject you? You see, she has a new perspective. And he explained that uh, as a lower caste member, he was not even allowed to come into the courtyard of these higher class homes. He was not, or not allowed to cross the threshold of the front door. And if he needed water or something, uh, he gave an example of one woman, uh, he needed water, and she said, okay, hold your hands out like this. And she went and got a pitcher. She said, don't come any further. She went and got a pitcher and poured it into his hands. She wouldn't use a, a vessel because he would contaminate the vessel, and he couldn't touch the pitcher. He could only drink the water out of his hands. But all that has changed now that he's become a Christian, and and Sufan's mother has become a Christian, sees him differently now, and says, who are we to reject you if God has accepted you? Well, what a difference it makes in our perspective about people. Caste systems are done away. Races are done away. We should be colorblind, uh, like Martin Luther King said. Look at the character, not the color. And unfortunately, it just saddens me to see us going a different direction in the country. But we as Christians have the answer to that. And then <clears throat> maybe another application is we shouldn't be ashamed to proclaim the gospel because it's a privilege for us to represent God. We're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a privileged position uh, to represent somebody so high. And, and we are those representatives here on earth. And God chose us to do it and allows us the privilege of doing it. He didn't. He didn't ask angels to do it or any special class of people to do it. Just anybody who knows and has been saved can share that message with others. So I think that should give us um, a little bit of boldness uh, as we share the message that we're representing God to people. That's an important thing to do. And then finally, we should present the gospel with some urgency and invitation. <clears throat> Paul talks about, I urge you, uh, the love of Christ compels us and I plead with you, I urge you to uh, be reconciled. There ought to be a little urgency about our message that comes from that confidence and privilege of sharing it with other people. And uh, when we share the gospel and when we invite people to believe in Christ, uh, there should be some urgency about it because we, we know, I think as Paul knew, that you know time is running out. Um, the world is uh, rotting from within. And we have the answer for that. And so let's be bold. Let's be, um, take it seriously, be urgent, and continue to share that message of reconciliation that is possible with God and invite people into that relationship with God through Christ as Savior. So anyway, that's uh, kind of the way I see the passage as Paul continues to um, defend his apostleship and explain the New Covenant ministry and his motivations that come from love 
the love of God that he's experienced and how he sees people differently and how he's been given this wonderful responsibility to share that message with people. So he ministers with the motives of love and um, with the knowledge that he has this very important function to represent Christ by delivering his message to others. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.